Welcome to In the Principal's Office. I'm Angie Dillman, a high school principal. And I'm Michelle Liu, an assistant principal. And if you've ever wondered about the conversations that go on behind closed doors of a principal's office, then you've come to the right place. Today, we are in the office with Dr. Sean Bolton. Hello, Sean. How are we doing, Michelle? Good to see you again. It's so great to see you. And I just want everyone to know that this was a journey to get here. I think it was third time the charm for us to have this meeting. So I'm happy to finally be here. And, I, and I'm glad to be here despite all the technical difficulties and calendar issues. Oh my gosh. Earlier today, we were supposed to meet and talk. And of course, right when I was going to sign on, I got a text message from my cable company saying, oh, hey, by the way, we're out for now. And it just reminds me of how it must be like for our students, right? That anxiety when they have to get on a certain time, maybe they have to take a test. At times like that, I always remember our students and what they're going through if they're doing the distance learning model. Absolutely. We have met through WASC. And for those who don't know, WASC is an accreditation body, a Western accreditation body for high schools and colleges. Every six years, high schools have to get accredited. It has to get renewed. And the really cool thing about that is that they bring together volunteers. So teachers, administrators can volunteer to be on these committees. And so three years ago, I was assigned to a committee and we went and we visited Sean's school. And so that's how I first met him. Do you even remember? That was, it seems like a long time ago. It wasn't a long time no, ago. No, I do remember it. And yeah. it was a great visitation team. In fact, just having been part of WASC for quite some time now, it was one of the best visitation teams I've been part of. And it just seemed like we had a nice mix of educators that were very passionate about public education and just student success. And the revisit this year was great too, because it's always great to have somebody on the revisit that was on the original team. This is just a PSA for anybody that hasn't participated in a WASC visit. It's such great professional development. So if you're a teacher, if you're an administrator, and this is something that you're interested in, you should definitely check it out because I've learned so much and I get to meet fabulous principals like Sean. (laughs) Thank you. When Angie and I first started this and we were talking about people we want to interview, I immediately thought of you. And that's because I saw the leadership that you brought to your school. The other thing is we meet with students when we go on these visits. And every single student that I spoke with, they kept saying, oh, Dr. Bolton, like he's so accessible. He'll meet with us. He talks to us. If that's not an endorsement of what you're doing at your school, I don't know what is. And so I said, I have to bring you on here because we need to share with the world, our very small world, (laughs) all the cool things you're doing at your school. Well, and I also think that your small world, you know, I I hope it grows because the ethos of your podcast is so critical about women in public education leadership roles. And, you know, we've had the conversation before about how critical that is moving forward, especially in the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. If I think about what my legacy would be, I think this is part of it. Just putting, putting the voice out there for other people to hear, being unafraid of stepping forward into an unknown and unfamiliar space is, you know, I'm like, Hey, I'll I'll do my part and I'll have fun doing it. So that's the other good thing. (laughs) I love to know who you are, how you even ended up here, 
what things in your life happened or experience shaped you to put you on the path of education, put you on the path of leadership and how you've used your experiences, be who you are now and what you're doing at your school. That's one journey that we go on as professionals and human beings. And in looking back, the two most critical variables that happened to me is that I was born overseas and I was born in Hong Kong and I moved to California when I was eight years old. And in that journey, my dad took me all over the world because he was an international businessman. He did business in all corners of the world. And you start to realize that there's basic human truths. And one of them is education. And it's something that a lot of cultures and a lot of countries do value. And I just found that very fascinating and just stepping into different schools and having grown up in Los Angeles and going to public schools in Los Angeles, my dad would take me to China, Europe, South America, and you just start looking beyond the cuisine and the the clothing, the language, and you start visiting schools. And I would talk to a lot of his business partners and their kids who sometimes were my age. And you just start to really, you begin this like fascination with education in different parts of the world and what they're rooted in. And that was one big variable. And the second variable is that I had some incredible mentors and I'm Mm. sure you have as well that just inspire the passion inside you to, to give back. And you talk about legacy. I don't think there's any greater legacy that you can leave than being an educator on this planet. I mean, to just replace the next generation with a better generation should be the goal of every civilization, no matter where they are in their history. And I really think that America in 2020 is in a precarious place. And our role as public educators are just that much more critical. That global lens that I was exposed to very early on, and it continued well into my late 20s, early 30s. And then you couple that with some incredible mentors. They think way outside the box. They're students. They're teacher-centered, and they're the ones that really inspire you. And when you marry those two journeys, I was lucky enough to go on and be exposed to. That's what landed me at Newport Harbor High School, where I've been principal for eight years. I didn't realize you've been principal for eight years. That's a long time to be a principal in one school. It's a long time, yeah. And so, and I was a principal at a high school in South County for five years, and so. I have been told that 13 years in the principal chair is far too long. Uh, I don't subscribe to traditional traditional <laughs> grooming practices in public yeah. education. <laughs> you don't follow the playbook exactly, huh, Sean? No, no and, I, and I feel like you don't either. And that's why yeah. I think, you know, there's... There's a, there's a professional respect and admiration there because yeah. I think there's a lot of people that jump into the chair and I'm sure you've seen it as a teacher and an administrator. They're climbers. They want to go yes. from assistant principal to principal to director. To yes. assistant, yeah. And they spend three, four years just to build the resume in a seat. It's not too long. It's not yep. too Right. Right. It It fits into the mold. When I was a teacher, whenever we got a new principal, we would always use that as a gauge. Hmm. Are they here because it's a stepping stone or are they here because they care? That was before first impressions of the principal. That was just the way we thought about it as a teacher. Can I go back to the Hong Kong experience? Were you born in Hong Kong and you lived there until you were eight? My dad's side of the family spent 35 years in Southeast Asia. So they left England after the war. My dad flew in the Royal Air Force. Between India and Hong Kong, they spent 35 years out there. And my mom was a stewardess, a flight attendant for Pan Am. And so I'm a product of the jet age. My mom (laughs) is from Los Angeles. She was working a flight on Pan Am where my dad was a passenger. 
and here I am. So she lived in Hong Kong for quite some time as well. My sister was born there and I went back. I did a gap year. So after high school, and I went to Hoover High School in Glendale, I went back to Hong Kong for a year and I worked. That was an experience as well. I, so I you just, speak Chinese then, I'm assuming. Well, Cantonese. I, yes. I, I'm a novelty at dim sum. Yeah. I, yes. I, can, I can successfully order dim sum. And of course, they always that turn probably... around and call me Guaylo. Right? Yeah, the yeah. The devil speaks our tongue. Yeah. It probably so, shocks all the waiters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I keep going back to the Hong Kong thing because my mom is from Hong Kong. Okay. So she's born and raised in Hong Kong. She came over from Hong Kong when she was nine. Her family is from Southern China and then they went to Hong Kong. So now I'm like, Sean's more Chinese than I am. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you speak a little bit of Cantonese? Like I don't. Lehoma, yeah, I right? mean, very, very, very little. My dad was born here in the United States. He's Chinese okay. as well. Okay. Um, but he was born in the United States. His dad was born in New Mexico. So wow. they came over in the early 1900s when that wow. first wave of Chinese wow. immigrants came over. My grandfather was born in New Mexico and he spoke Spanish. <laughs> and then my dad was born in El Paso, Texas. So I used to think his nationality was a cowboy. There's pictures of him and he's wearing the hat and the boot. And he said, y'all, he met my mom. And so he didn't speak. And so my mom said that she tried to teach me. Of course, now I'm like, mom, why didn't you teach me how to speak Chinese? What a skill. And she said, but your dad didn't speak because when he was growing up in the 50s in El Paso, Texas, during that time in the United States, they were all about assimilation. So being a good old American boy, which worked because I thought my dad was a cowboy. (laughs) So so that's what I mean when I say you are much more Chinese than I am, Sean. That's pretty amazing. And I love Hong Kong. (laughs) Have you you been to Hong Kong? I've only been there one time. I loved it. I loved it. It is just- It really, really is. What does Hong Kong remind me of? It reminded me a little bit of New York City, but bigger and cleaner and- more dense, if that's possible, right. right? When people think of New York, we always think of New York as the most dense city in America, but the malls are humongous. And Incredible. It's just, when's the last time you've been to Hong Kong? Have you been So back? I took my wife in 2006 and we okay. spent a couple of weeks there. Yeah. And again, it's it's just one of my favorite places in the world. And I agree, it's it's got a little bit of New York, except it's got this eclectic edge to it. The Chinese culture is so rooted in Hong Kong, coupled with a lot of European influence. Yes. And you've got that crossroads of culture and language and food. It's a city that's very alive and it's the gateway to Southern China. And yeah. Southern China has become a manufacturing giant, yeah. a technological giant. The nightlife, the ferries, oh the gosh. food, the yes. sounds, it's just an incredibly energetic city that's contagious. You, once yeah. you go, you want to go back. But I can't wait till I get to take my kids there and show them where dad was born, where yeah. he lived and all that yeah. stuff. We don't have any family friends left there, unfortunately. Okay. I'm sure you've been following what's been happening there, especially yeah. over the last 18 months. Quite sad, but it's, it's quite inspirational sad. at the yeah. same time. Pro-democracy movement that is so, so powerful. I agree. And then I also agree about the intersection of culture. I remember when I would look at pictures of my mom and she was dressed in Mary Jane's. She had on oh. the British dress and she would always have her hair with a big bow. My mom's grandfather was a translator in an embassy. 
And so he spoke English. And, and when I look at my grandparents, their wedding photo in Hong Kong, they were wearing traditional Western clothes. So she was in a white wedding dress and he was in a tuxedo. Like you said, that intersection of culture was really interesting. My mom loves afternoon tea. My mom loves afternoon tea. She puts milk in her tea. Of course, now that I'm older, oh, okay, that's the English influence. And you talk about education systems. I mean, it was the public system there is rooted in the British Victorian curriculum. Yeah. But it's very scripted and it's very strict in a lot of ways, uniforms and, you know, you've got form one, form two, form three. And I just think that there are a lot of Chinese now that look back and there were a lot of issues with imperialism and colonialism as you well know, but the education system that was rooted in was free flowing. It was free thinking beyond the stringent components right. of it. It's what we value about democracy. It's the right. genius behind democracy in the sense that if you work hard enough and you educate yourself and you become upwardly mobile and education is an avenue for that. The Chinese, especially after World War II, really valued the education system that the British put in. Right. And, it, and that exposure also to the Western tradition in education. And it was that nice blend. And yeah. now Shanghai and Beijing are trying to clamp down on a lot of the freedoms that exist within not only law and and the media, the free press, but also in education. And so that's an interesting variable to pay attention to as as the pro-democracy movement runs its course. The global perspective you have when it comes to education, and I feel exactly the same way, learning about the humanity in other places, and it puts things in perspective. It does. It puts a lot of things in perspective. Right. So so what did you teach? I went to college in the Midwest to a tiny liberal arts college, and that's where I began my teaching career. I majored in history. I was Mm. credentialed in English and in history. And I started out teaching history. I taught for two years in Springfield, Missouri, of all places. Okay. I wound up there because it was a great place to go to school. I got a golf scholarship and, you know, some of it was to get away from my family for a little bit, which I kind of valued (laughs) that the four years away. Yeah. And then came back. I went to junior college in California, but then finished my undergraduate work there and then did graduate work out there as well at the same school and came back and taught in LA Unified. And just that shift from Springfield, Missouri, the schools there are a lot like Orange County schools. They were very high performing, but there was a nice blend of ethnicity, even in that part of Missouri it was. And then coming back to Los Angeles and anybody that's taught in LA Unified knows that it's just a very, very difficult district to teach in. You're basically a number. Yeah. And I taught English at a middle school Mm -hmm. and I credit that time as a time where you can really gain an appreciation for what you have now. Mm. The career teachers at McClay, the career LA Unified, Unified teachers, the teachers that teach in high impact areas with low socioeconomic students and families, mm-hmm. where there's high homicide rates or high crime and high unemployment. It's incredible what students overcome, what teachers overcome, what you endure. And so I taught English there. And then I came down to Newport Mesa, where I taught English at a middle school down here for four years. And then I started my administrative career in Newport Mesa, where I was an assistant principal at Estancia High School. Then I got my shot at being principal at Laguna Hills High School in Saddleback in 2008. 
And I moved back up here mainly because my kids are going to be going to Newport Harbor. Okay. You know, I'm excited about it. They're not excited about it. <laughs> they don't know. want that. Anytime that right. a parent is <laughs> yeah. an employee of the school where they go to. There's yeah. no wiggle room, right? No. And all eyes are on you too. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's pretty much the journey. I, yeah. you know, Springfield, Los Angeles, and then yeah. Newport Mesa, Saddleback, Newport Mesa. And here I am. And I look back on it. And again, the, the magic is really working with the kids mm. and working with the communities and just drawing off of a lot of experiences that you have in the 24 years now that I've been doing this. The different conversations, the different experiences, the different students, the different colleagues, the different school years, because yeah. every year has its own flavor, its own personality. And it's a magical profession. It's the great American experiment, right? Yeah, Public it education. Is. It really, really is. It is. You have so many fascinating parts to your career, but is there one thing in particular or something that's sticks out to you as the best moment, the most challenging moment, the moment where you personally had an epiphany about something? Are yeah, there any of those moments where you're like, oh, that was a moment? You know, you touched upon it. And I think public education to some degree was hijacked by the standardization movement, mm. the academic performance index in California, right. the API, right? All of yeah. a sudden we were tied to a number and 800, you remember 800 yes. was the golden number, right? <laughs> yes, I remember. And, and you'd have celebrations and t-shirt giveaways and free dances if your yeah. API went up. Coupled with the API movement and the CSD, the standardized testing movement, was the the professional learning community movement, mm -hmm. the DeFore, the Solution Tree, mm -hmm. the Doug Reeves, the Lead, Lead and Learn Center, yep. and just that model of how professional communities have to operate and the different varied lesson design that started to evolve. And, you know, there was an enigma out there about, okay, so we're meeting as professionals, we're evaluating data, we're manipulating our pacing guides, our instructional delivery and so forth, and our assessment piece and how we revisit the data. And it was a beautiful cycle on paper. And I think in a lot of ways it worked in theory, but then mm. in practice it was very, very difficult because you had these imperfect human beings walking mm -hmm. in your room. And as human beings and as educators, you're imperfect too. And so you'd have good days and bad days. And of course, some kid could just pull the fire alarm and then everything goes right. sideways, right? So in the height of it all, I started really having second thoughts about the value of a lot of the professional development that we were doing. And so as a principal, I'm in my third year in Saddleback and we yeah. went through the Doug Reeves Lead and Learn Center. And it's all great stuff. Any educator that dives into it, he finds value in the journals, the books, the teachings of Doug Reeves. And then, you know, you switch over to Solution Tree and Rick DeFore and yep. Marzano and Mohammed. And they're great, passionate educators, but they never really talked about the relationship piece that you have to have with your community and your students. And so the aha moment goes back to, and I credit Cliff Jarmy. He's a, a longtime wrestling teacher, mathematics teacher. He majored in mathematics at UCLA. Yeah. Is one of the most successful coaches in CIF history in wrestling. He just kept throwing it back at me. Like, yeah. you know, this stuff's a bunch of garbage. It's right. bunkum. I don't know what they're talking about. 
I just teach. I started observing him more and more and more because the results in his Algebra 2 honors and Algebra 1 classes were very high. In Mm -hmm. fact, his DNF rate was lower than any other teacher teaching those subjects. Zero complaints. Not that that's the barometer as an administrator, but it is a variable. No complaints from parents. And you know, Algebra 2 honors can be that class. Yeah, that tipping point kind of class where... It really, really is. is. And what I noticed was, is that every day before class, he stood at his door and greeted students. He made a note of going to every single sport, whether it was softball or basketball or soccer or, and here's a wrestling guy, right? He made a note of going to the holiday concert for choir music. Mm -hmm. He made a note of going to the fall drama play, the spring musical. He was visible. His wife was visible. He had three kids of his own. So it's not like he had all this time, but he made the time. I began to realize that we're missing out on the relationship piece and really talking about it, valuing it, Mm -hmm. and really defining it within the context of our work. And so all that other stuff is important, but I got a little bit brainwashed and I went down the journey and I realized that when we started talking assessments and grading practices and lesson design and pacing guides, that we never talked about the human element. He knew every kid's name within the first week. He knew who was on a 504, what level of English language learner he had in this class. He showed up at every IEP, every 504, every SST. We all have those educators on our campuses, that Cliff Jarmy on our campus. Yeah, no wonder he's like, I don't understand this. (laughs) Like, I'm just teaching. (laughs) I'm I'm already, in his head, he's probably like, yeah, but I already know, like, how is this different than what I'm doing? I mean, that's probably what he meant. You know, how is this different? Why do I have to put something else on top of what I'm already doing when I'm already doing looks just like that? And I don't have any problems with it. Exactly. (laughs) And so that's where I had the epiphany about the relationship pieces. To build these strong relationships with your students, your teachers, your community, people at the district office. I think relationships are paramount. So do I. And that was something that when I was going through my administrative credential program, we interviewed our superintendent. This is at my former district. And he mentioned that relationships are everything, like no yes. matter what, they're everything. And I've heard it a lot before, and I'm sure everybody else does too, right? Relationships are everything, don't forget. But I don't think it's until you're in the shoes or you're in a certain role and you see the power of having a relationship and how that affects in all ways what you're talking about. It affects the data. It affects instruction. It affects moving your school forward. It affects when there's crisis like the pandemic where you need to ask teachers to be flexible about certain things. Um, But it is the biggest thing I've learned as well. And it's something that I try not to forget. It's easy to forget it as an administrator, especially in my role. I think I do a lot of the detail work. I do a lot of the things where it's behind the scenes and do a lot of managing. It's easy for me to get caught up in my to-do list of things I need to get done for the school and then forget the relationship piece because I'm like, I'm always so busy. I always have to keep moving. But it's something this pandemic has told me a couple of things. One is that talking on the phone has made a renaissance in my life. I do that a lot now. I hadn't talked on the phone in years, but because school closed and I was so tired of being on screen, 
I started telling teachers like, Hey, call me, just call me. Let's, right. let's have our meeting, but let's have a phone call and taking the time to talk to teachers. Even if it's for five minutes, are there a thousand other things I could be doing? Of course there are, but I've realized, especially now in this environment where we are disconnected physically, the more I invest in people, the more I give people space to be seen and be heard students and staff that actually is a benefit to all the other things I need to do. You're absolutely right. Absolutely. Interesting. Right. Yeah. I try, I try not to forget. So if anybody's out there listening and you're interested in becoming an administrator, don't discount all of those conversations that you have or the time that you take to invest in students and in staff. It's important and it's valuable. It smooths the path for everything that else that comes, I believe. <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right. And I hope that cliche, I mean, I, I'm going to borrow that. A renaissance in telephone calling <laughs> is something that we all undertake during this pandemic because- yeah. Like you, I found myself calling more people, parents and mm -hmm. students. And if they had yeah. their cell phone listed on the student information system, just reach out to them by phone. Yes. Right? What is going on? Why aren't you Zooming? Why aren't you turning in your yeah. And I think that we forget that and we become so dependent on email. We've become so dependent on texting that yeah. a good old fashioned phone call, there's nothing wrong with it. No. And I think, especially because of the email and even just when we're, you know, using virtual platforms like Zoom or Google Meet, if for whatever reason, it's not as personal as talking to somebody on the phone. It's just really right. odd. I supervise the math department at my school, the department chair. We have a standing meeting every week. He never comes to it, which is fine. But you know what he does? He never comes to it because he normally calls me on the phone around 6 p.m. And when he started doing that in the summertime, which is fine too, because I'm also very accessible and he would call me and he'd be like, Oh, what are you doing, Michelle? I'm like, Oh, I'm walking my dogs. Cause I always walk them around this time. So now our, it. yeah. So now every time he calls me, he's like, even if it's, I don't know, earlier or later, he's like, Hey, you walking your dogs. And I'm like, I don't know. I am now because you're calling me. So now I, I have to it. go walk my dogs. Why invest in something like that? Or why even bring that up? Or why even have this joke or habit or ritual? But I think what people forget is that's, the connection. Correct. That's the thread that leads to other things like having hard conversations about grading Correct. practices. Okay, we need to talk about this part that affects the department and then we can work together and collaborate. And I know for sure that all of that work is built on the fact that we always had phone calls That's when right. I was walking my dogs in the evening. So That's, well, I yeah. love it. I know you mentioned mentors earlier and I am obsessed with my mentors. I wonder if you could talk more about that. So the, the two mentors that I've had, I mean, Dr. Alan Musarino, who's a superintendent out in Riverside, he was a principal who hired me. I became a principal colleague of his in Saddleback. And then he went on his superintendency journey and I've just kept in touch with him. He was the yeah. content expert on my dissertation and just really passionate, outside the box thinker, always pushing the envelope as far as the box and the paradigm mm. and making sure that we're all always thinking outside the box and looking at issues from different angles. And also just talking about courageous leadership. It's hard what we do, Michelle. Yeah. I mean, what we do is very, very difficult. We're at two public high schools in Southern California with a lot of expectation That's on our right. school and also mm -hmm. a high-performing community. But at the same time, we have individuals and families that are broken and how do we help them yeah. along the way? Yeah. So he just sees the whole 360 degree view from an 80,000 foot view and is yeah. very refreshing about it. If you read his blogs, he's very real about what is wrong with education. Mm. 
just where the money's going and where the lack of leadership is. And I think you have to call it for what it is. And not enough times in education are we willing to have those difficult conversations with ourselves, Mm. with our colleagues, and with the state of affairs within our district. He is just a master at that. He welcomes professional conflict. He welcomes those difficult conversations. And he also wants to take a look at things from a different perspective. And then Laura Ott is a assistant superintendent that I had in Saddleback. And she really demonstrated for me, if you take ego out of it and you take Mm. self out of it, how powerful a leadership role really can be. She had no desire to go beyond the assistant superintendent level. She was very fair. She was very firm. She was very direct. But at the same time, she she was nice. But a lot of people mistook that as weakness. Yes. And boy, when she had to be, she was anything but weak. Right. You would call people on the carpet. She had a little bit of a a sharp tongue when she needed it and Mm -hmm. very well appreciated. But she loved to laugh. She loved to, you know, take you out for a drink and have a good time. But yeah. boy, you messed up. Uh, she was the first one to call. Yeah. <laughs> you brought something up. Maybe this applies just to women, especially women in leadership is I have to be one or the other, right? right? It's either you have to be nice. And if you're nice, that implies that maybe you're not as strong and people Correct. can take advantage of you. Or you have to be on the other side of that really harsh, but then, oh, but then people can't relate to you. And now you're just kind right. of vicious how to straddle that line and that balance do you find that that's mostly applies to women in leadership do you think that you know men as well in terms of being nice well i i think that is really the the magic behind this podcast is Mm. to explore that space and that space of perception when it comes to public education leadership i've been told that oh you you look the part Oh, okay. Like, you're like, why? thank you. I'm the white guy who's tall, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Is that why? Yes. But and then I they know, say they're and then they're like, yeah, that's why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, like, well. Exactly. I know my limitations in a lot of different areas <laughs> when it comes to leadership. And that's when you start building a good team around you that doesn't represent everything that you're about. I, yeah. I think the best leaders surround themselves with people that don't look like them, don't talk like mm. them, don't have the same life experiences they do. I just find that women in, in some leadership roles overcorrect because yeah. they understand or they're intimidated by the mm. fact that males look at them in a certain way yeah. or of their ethnicity their that that bias whether it's implicit or explicit biases that exist or unconscious biases that right. exist and that's a very difficult environment to navigate sometimes and yeah. again what i appreciated about laura ott was the fact that she took all that out i have met some incredible female high school principals along the way that i don't think would be considered for a superintendency role or an assistant superintendent role because they don't look the part. Mm -hmm. And it's horrible to say, but we both know it's out there. Yeah. I hope that, you know, someone listening who never thought about going into administration or possibly exploring a administrative role in Mm. a district where they don't see themselves because they're not white, male, traditional in that sense. And I think that's what's wrong with education Mm. is that there are certain areas where people are turned off by it because they don't see themselves in the larger fabric of what the community is. And if you're ethnic or if you're a female and you want to try a high-performing district that happens to be a certain way, go for it. 
right? go for it. This is America, right? Yeah. It's public education. <laughs> it's, I just think that in the coming decades, especially in the coming years, having a diverse, varied lens mm. when it comes to leadership and just, you know, you think about at the district level, that executive cabinet group, and then the site level, the principal, assistant principals, you need to have different life experiences and lenses. If you're going to lead a school in this environment, in this space, yep. it's, it's a very difficult space to navigate now. And if you just have a bunch of white dudes trying to navigate this thing, I wish you the best of luck because <laughs> I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Yeah. That's yeah. just what I think. I think it's great, especially coming from a a white dude. <laughs> so what, what do you envision your own future to look like? What are some things that you're still interested in learning and areas that you're interested in growing in personally, well, professionally? You know, that's why I like staying in touch and staying connected with you. I've got a whole list of people because I, I do want to run a district one day. I do want to be a superintendent one yeah. day and just assemble a team. And because it's easy, I like to pick professional sports when a new head coach comes in and yeah. they kind of clean house with the assistant coaches and they build their assistant coaching team, putting together a team that I know, people that I can trust that mm -hmm. are that are like-minded in the sense that they're passionate about kids, but yes. having, again, those different cultural experiences, life mm -hmm. experiences, different sexual preferences. Mm -hmm. I mean, just that whole gambit that you have someone who is gay, you have someone right. who is Asian American, Mexican yeah. American, African American, someone who speaks Farsi and, and yeah. has a Middle Eastern perspective and just bringing America to the table right? yeah, and, yeah. and seeing if we can make that work in a public school. That's my ultimate goal. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds amazing. I, I'm visualizing it in my head and what a, what a district that would be. Well, you may be part of it, Michelle. All right. Well, it's on tape in front of everybody. So I feel really good about this situation. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to grab Ziamora too. You know? <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing the, your time with us. And I have to tell everybody yeah. too, we're doing this over our winter break, which is probably easier for us to do calendar wise. But also I appreciate Sean taking the time to come here oh, on his own time. Michelle. You've said so many impactful and valuable things. And I know that people listening will take something away from what you said. Thank you for being here. And we will see you next time in the principal's office. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this show. It'll help others find us. Yeah. And you can follow us on Instagram at in the principal's office pod and on Twitter at principals pod. And we'll see you next time in the principal's office. Mm -hmm.